Thank you for listening to this sermon by Grace Point Church. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website at gracepointaz.com, or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday morning. Good morning, Grace Point Church, and thank you so much for being here. Please remain standing with me as we read through God's Word. If you'd like to follow along with the reading and need a Bible, they can be found in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take this one home with you. Or if you know someone that needs a Bible, please take one and give it to them. We'd love for you to have the Word in, in your hands throughout the week. Today's scripture will be taken from the book of Esther, chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, and can be found on page 410. 410. Follow along with me as I read. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his throne, his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Medea and the nobles of governors and of the providences were before him while he showed the riches of royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for bringing us here this morning. God, I thank you for the event that we're doing outside. God, I pray that you would bring um, as many people as as can. God, I just pray for the... uh, the youth trip, I, I pray that you would uh, bless that trip plentifully. God, I pray for the words that Jason speaks this morning, that you would uh, bless us with those words. And all these things we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, you guys can go ahead and grab a seat. Man, if this is your first day with us, this is a great day to be your first day as we begin a brand new series. My absolute favorite way to preach through the Bible is to go through a whole book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Sometimes we'll take a chunk at a time. Sometimes we'll just go slow and get a verse done uh, a week, but that's my favorite way. It's not the only way that we will do sermon series, but it is my favorite way to do sermon series. We just finished up the book of James, and we started James in January, and we ended it this last uh, Sunday. And so we start uh, the book of Esther today, and this is going to take us all the way up to July 4th when we go and blow stuff up and eat red meat for the sake of our country, right? Right? Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, Esther's going to walk us all the way uh, till we celebrate the, the free world, all right? And so, um, but it's a great, great book. It's a, um, p- a peculiar book, and I'm going I'm to tell you a couple of reasons why. Number one, we don't know who wrote the book of Esther. Esther probably didn't write the book of Esther. We're not really sure. Maybe Mordecai wrote the book of Esther, and I'll explain who he is as we go through this book. We're not for sure who wrote it, but that's nothing new. We have a New Testament book called Hebrews, and we're not for sure who wrote Hebrews either. We think maybe Paul wrote it, but we're not exactly sure. I don't think Paul wrote it, but smarter men than me and women than me disagree with me, and that's fine. Um, Anyways, we don't know who wrote it. The other thing is that God is never explicitly mentioned in the book. There's themes of him in the book, but he's never mentioned. And so that was one thing that caught my eye as I was praying through. What are we going to go through next? Where are our people at? What are you feeling? And maybe for the last couple of years, you felt that God seems silent. And you've prayed or you've, you've wondered, like, what is going on? What's happening in the world? It seems like he's silent. Is he absent? And the answer is no, he's very present. And there are times when God seems silent, but he's at work. And that's what we're going to see in the book of Esther. We're going to see uh, some themes of providence. We're going to see some things of human responsibility. We're going to see a theme where God mocks the unrighteous. Like if you don't know that God has a sense of humor, like God could be on Saturday Night Live. 
You need to know that. I'm not even kidding around. Like, if, if you're like, is it okay to laugh? Yes. And if you did, you'd probably have more friends, okay? You should laugh. It's okay to, to not take yourself too serious. And so God has a sense of humor. So, for example, we're going to see the most powerful man in the world not be able to lead and control his wife. It's irony. It's humor. It makes him look ridiculous. That to the, to the whole entire kingdom of Persia, he's a god, but at home, he's a coward and a wimp, and he can't win an argument with her. And then we see where there's, there's a guy named Haman, and you can think of him as like, hey, man, you know, all right? So Haman is this guy who wants to destroy all the Jewish people for whatever reason. Ever since God told Abraham he was going to make his family a great people that would eventually become the church, Satan listened in on that, and he's always tried to make it hard on the Jewish people. So Haman is trying to basically exterminate and eradicate Jewish people, and he's created this torture system, this death machine for the guy, this guy named Mordecai. But Mordecai ends up raising the power, and Haman gets put to death on the very death instrument he created that was intended for Mordecai. It's a really good movie. Like, this is, this is wonderful. If you've like, the Bible's boring, then you haven't read it, okay? And so anyways, you guys look at me like, like, you don't enjoy God's uh, sense of humor as much as I do, but I love it. I think it's awesome. And so what we're going to see here is this great divine tension. Uh, this'll, this, there's great divine tension in here, and if you're kind of nerd-like like me and you care about theology and you understand soteriology and you're, you're always wondering between how, how, uh, how, how much does God's providence and God's sovereignty have to do with what's happening in the world, how much does human behavior and human responsibility have to do, and I, and I want you to know we're going to see this theme of both all throughout the book of Esther. We're going to see where God is completely sovereign, God is completely in control, and God is completely sovereign and in control and working through people. And his name will never be brought up one single time. The theme of this book tells us how a Jewish girl became the queen of all of Persia. And providentially, the reason God put her as queen is so she could save her people from a plot to destroy all of the Jewish people. And she's helped by her guardian cousin, and his name is Mordecai. And Esther also explains, so twofold, number one, how, how Israel was saved by Esther. In a, in a place called Susa uh, in, in Persia, which is interesting because God is at work in Susa. We kind of always think of God working in Jerusalem and in Israel and in that part of the map, but he's at work over in Persia doing a work that will allow Israel to rebuild and reform. And so this uh, also ex explains the celebration of Purim. If you're familiar with uh, Hebrew culture, if you're familiar with uh, traditions or uh, celebrations, Purim came along because of this season. Purim is a festival where the day before everyone fasts, and then on the next day they eat like kings and queens, and they read the story of Esther, and they give little rattles to the kids, their kids, so that every time that they read the name Haman, you know, the bad guy in the book, uh, they drown out his name with rattles so that no one can hear his name be said. Um, they have a huge carnival, kind of like what we're doing today. This is not Purim today, but we can imagine, okay? Uh, but that's where Purim comes from. So they're able to look back uh, in Esther in Old Testament history and the celebrations they have and parades they have, even today in modern-day Israel, when they celebrate the feast of Purim, it goes back to when God used Esther and Mordecai to save their people from utter destruction from Haman. 
And so that's the theme of the book, and we're going to take chunks at a time. We're going to go through nine verses today. And uh, another interesting thing about the book is probably the best uh, uh, commentary we have on the book. The commentator says it's probably not a good idea to preach through this book chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But that's exactly what we're going to do, okay? And so we'll see what kind of trouble that we can get ourselves into by doing that. So look with me in chapter 1, verse 1, as we kick off the book of Esther. Now, this is in the days of Ahasuerus. The Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the city, the citadel in Persia. So we're just going to stop there for a minute. I got to tell you who King Ahasuerus is. This is Xerxes. This is Xerxes the Great. This is if, how many of y'all watched the movie 300? You should have not watched that movie. It's so bad. I can't believe you'd watch that movie. There's way too much flesh in that movie. But when we watched that movie, sorry, but, you know, it was a different time in my life. When we watched that movie and we saw that huge guy that was being carried along on his throne as they went to go defeat the Spartans, that's Xerxes. That's King Ahasuerus. Now, I don't know how big he was and all that. In the movie, they want him to look like a monstrously huge and declare himself God, but that's him. That's the guy that we're talking about. That's who historians and biblical scholars believe King Ahasuerus is. Ahasuerus is his Hebrew name. Xerxes would be his Greek name, and so that's the guy. If you've read those books or watched those movies, this is the guy that we're talking about. He was considered one of the king of kings. Does that sound familiar? He was a king of kings, and uh, it was the most powerful kingdom in the world at this time. I want you to think back to uh, Daniel. Who knows Daniel in the Bible? And I, I, Yeah, okay, Daniel and uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all that stuff. That happened during the Babylonian uh, empire's reign. Babylon overtook Israel, destroyed Israel, brought in captives from Israel, brought in all their best, and people like Daniel and his friends went to live in Babylon. Well, later, Babylon was defeated by Persia. And what Xerxes did was he let a lot of the people... That's a balloon, by the way. Everybody's... What was it Ronald Reagan said? You missed me? You mar- Who knows that? Yeah. Yeah, I kind of had that moment just then when I heard that pop out there. Anyways, um, yeah, squirrel. Uh, so uh, Xerxes has defeated Babylon... And he's like, whatever, man, I don't know what the beef was between your gods and all that, but I don't care. I just want more power. So Israel, Israelites, you guys can go home. So a lot of them got to go back to Jerusalem. As we read about uh, Ezra or Nehemiah, when Nehemiah is back and he's re- rebuilding the walls around the temple uh, or the city walls, this is in that era during that time. And uh, <clears throat> excuse me. So Xerxes has let many of the Israelites go back home. And then some of them ended up still in exile in Susa. And that's where we find Mordecai, and that's where we find Esther. And that's who this king, king of kings, is. It's Xerxes. And it's said, and we see this depicted in the movie that none of us should have watched, is that uh, he loved his throne so much that the soldiers would carry him as they fought into battle, and they would carry him as he sat on his throne. He loved his throne. Many kings love their throne, and they love their power. And so kind of the theme that I want to see today and what I want to use these nine verses we're going to work through is to see what counterfeit glory really looks like, what a counterfeit kingdom or counterfeit power really looks like compared to the power and the throne and the person of Jesus. And so uh, counterfeit to King Jesus, many kings use their people because they love their throne. 
They use their people through taxes. They use their people through law. They use their people just through the influence that they have. And that's exactly what we're going to see Xerxes do. He's going to throw a six-month party with celebrities and with leaders of his country to celebrate what? Himself. Could you imagine? Like That's like a six-month birthday party. Okay, like it's all about me. Like everything is about his glory and everyone needs to be there to, you know, tell him how wonderful and glorious that he is. Xerxes is the kind of guy who will use his people because he loves his throne. But Jesus is the king who uses his throne to love and bless and care for his people. And so there's many leaders today who will use people because they love their power. But Jesus always uses his power to love his people. This tells us in verse verse 3 that this is the third year of his reign. He gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles of the governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of pomp. You, you know you know the phrase that usually comes with pomp. I can't say it as I have to fire myself. But that's who Xerxes is, all right? He's one of those. And the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Xerxes' six month of celebrating himself. I want you to notice he brought in all of the powerful, all of the famous, all of the uh, elite to have a six-month rager. That's what, that's what they're doing. This is for everyone to celebrate and worship him. This, I can't help but make me think of the feast where it says that we in Revelation will sit with Jesus, we'll dine with him, and we'll have a, a meal with him when, we, when he returns, that uh, we'll feast at his table, the, the sup, marriage supper with the lamb. I know that's a weird way to put it, but there's a lot of weird stuff in Revelation, so we let it slide. But we're going to dine with Jesus and celebrate Jesus, and it won't, because he need, won't be because he needs something from us. It's because he wants something for us. And this feast that Xerxes had faded, it's gone. Persia as it was is faded, and it's gone. The six months of celebrating himself stood nothing in the test of time. It was just dust in the wind. Verse 5, and when those days were completed, so when the six months of celebrating was over, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, you know, us, the, the, the we people like me and you. He gave us a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of, I don't know what that word is, and then marble and mother of pearl and precious stones. I ain't even going to try to say it. You'll just laugh at me, okay? I like, I like making you laugh, not when it's at my expense, all right? So I didn't go for it. But some of you understand what all that stuff is. I don't completely understand what it is. Here's what I think it is. Let me just tell you the kind of guy I am. I don't have a problem with a truck stop diner. You know why? Because they're comfortable. They're comfortable. You go in there and you sit down on a cushion. It may or may not be clean. If you own a truck stop, let's tell ourselves the truth, okay? If you travel to I-40, you go get a burger, and it's, you know you're going to have to fast for a month after you ate it to make up for the cal- caloric intake, but it's cozy. And so I get to travel sometimes, and I get to go out and eat at some uh, neat places. I don't know that they're always nice. They're not necessarily expensive, but they always want me to sit on metal. Like, I guess that's hipstery. That's cool. Like, let's make chairs that are terrible to sit on, but they look wonderful in a picture. 
That's what I imagine all this stuff was like. It was nice stuff. Like, I don't know about you. Nice stuff is not comfortable for me. But if you understand mother of pearl and precious stones and all this stuff, this is him flexing or flossing on his people and showing them, basically, look what I've been doing with your taxes. Isn't it wonderful? Aren't I awesome? I have built a really nice palace for myself. Thank you guys so much for all that you've let me take from you. Okay, uh, This is what Xerxes is doing. He's showing off all of his gold. He's showing off all of what they have in the palace. And it reminds me that in heaven, Jesus uses gold for pavement. Because that's not what our beauty is for. That's not where our worth comes from. Our value is not found in gold and mother of pearl or whatever porphyry is, right? It's found in, in the dignity that God has given us. It's found in the radiant glory of Christ himself. And so we see this counterfeit glory that Xerxes has taken for himself. Um, and verse 7 this is what I think was one of my favorite things to find as I was studying this. There, are, there was a drinking game in the Bible, okay? It, for real, let's, let's check it out. Verse 7, drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. I guarantee you it wasn't a Bass Pro mug like what I got at the house, okay? And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There was an edict about drinking, okay? There is no compulsion, now, what that means is everybody can drink as much or little as they'd like. And you may say, why would you have to make an edict about that? Because back then, and that, I don't know for whatever reason, but every time the king would drink, you had to drink. What is that? That's a drinking game, right? I had a buddy, he lives in my neighborhood, he's a friend of mine, he's not a Christian, and he was asking me about watching the Masters, and he was, he was telling me that um, him and his buddies were going to do some kind of drinking game where every time something happened on the Masters, and, and then he said, like, man, I just can't, we, I'd be under the table if I did that, right? And so that's kind of what is happening here. Used to, the king would take a drink, you'd have to take a drink, and he says, not during this festival. So I don't know if the king was a boozer or what the deal was, but he... he he said an edict that they could drink as much or little as they want, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Okay? Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. And it really wasn't a cultural reason. There was just so many people there. Uh, the men and women, it wasn't that they stayed separate, but it was that all the women went over there and all the men hung out over here. Um, and they drank and drank and hung out on uncomfortable, rich furniture. And so, so here's the thing. When it says the royal wine, I don't know anything about wine. And some of you are going to know what this is. But think, and I'm going to say it wrong, Romani Conti. Who knows what I'm talking about? Really? Well, that's the tax bracket we're all in, isn't it? <laughs> <clears throat> because in 1945, this wine sold for $558,000. Yeah, that's what they're drinking. Bourbon. How many bourbon? Yeah, we're all telling ourselves, how many bourbon drinkers in here? Okay? <laughs> Think old Rip Van Winkle. Who knows old Rip Van Winkle? All right, 30,000 bottle of bourbon. This is what they're drinking. This is what's going on. And this is, uh, everyone could drink as much or little as they want. Everyone was under compulsion to do what they wanted. This is counterfeit to what Jesus frees us from. His edict says, sin will no longer rule and reign in our hearts. I was thinking about that the other day, like just the free, like the insecurity removed from our, the voice in our head or the pride removed from the voice in our head, our ability to live under this edict where we'll no longer wound each other with words and deeds, 
What I see in these nine verses is a counterfeit glory that counterfeits the, the true glory of Jesus, of Christ. And so here's the thing. I'm going to run right to application with this. There's two people that I think about in this text. Well, really three. There's Jesus, and then I'm going to set him over here for just a minute. And when I think about me and I think about you, I think about those who are pouring the wine or pouring the Kool-Aid for others to drink, and then those who are holding their cup out to receive the wine or receive the Kool-Aid to drink. I think about, uh, are you Xerxes in the story? Or are you one of the many people? Or, or, or who is your Xerxes? Say, are you Xerxes? Are you pouring the wine for others to drink? And here's what I'm asking you. Are you functioning as God or as King of Kings in all of your relationships? Now, I know when I ask that question, you go, no, I know that no one would go, I do, you know, but let me ask you a couple other questions. Is your own advice the only advice that you'll take? Is your own advice, every time you ask for advice or you seek counsel or someone tries to give counsel, do you think of all the reasons why you don't need to hear it or all the reasons why it's wrong or all the reasons why this person is ridiculous and you can eliminate their, like, do you go like, dude, you missed a belt loop when you put your belt on this morning? I don't think I'm going to take advice from you. You know, some of the best advice I ever got was people who wore suspenders. So there you go. But uh, is that you? Are you using your power to take glory for yourself from others. As a parent, uh, do the rules in your house keep you cozy and comfortable, or are they so that your kids can grow and thrive and flourish? Is the bedtime set so that they can be out of your hair, or is the bedtime set so that they can get a good night's sleep? And if the answer is both, that's cool. I get it, all right? But think about how you're living your life. Are you autonomous from others? Are you living in community? Does everyone have to bend to all of your preferences? Do your preferences become commandments? And that's the way your marriage works. That's the way fathering works or mothering works. That's the way you lead and supervise your crew at work. Or that's the way that you run your company. Have you set yourself up to be the expert? And there's yes people all around you. And no one can disagree with you in any way. Or their job is on the line. Or their... Um, uh, uh, bedtime is on the line, or whatever it is. Many of us will find ourselves living just like Xerxes. At some point in our relationships, we might find ourselves being the one who doesn't need to repent, but everyone around us does. That we drink our own Kool-Aid. We celebrate ourselves. It's called pride. We've all fallen victim to this. If that's you, the good news is it's not anything that you can't repent of. What does it look like to repent from pride? First of all, it looks like to say, I think that's me. I think we always eat where I want to eat. We always do what I want to do. All the rules come from me. Everything we do is my idea. Everyone who, who disagrees with me is stupid and an idiot or whatever names you come up with. And then you have to realize I'm not very humble. The way that we, that we humble ourselves is we get low and we lift other people up. Instead of taking from people, we give to people. And here's the thing that has helped me so much. When I make decisions as a dad, as a husband, as a pastor, as a leader, with any whatever influence I am, I'm trying to think what is best for the people that I'm charged to lead and care for. I know what's best for me. <laughs> or I know what I think is best for me. 
but that's not what I get to do. And I get it wrong, like you get it wrong, and I have to repent of pride, but ultimately, the authority that God has given to all of us, and all of us have some degree of authority because there's somebody who cares about what you think. That's called influence. What are you going to do with that influence? Are you going to use it for the good of those that you influence, or are you going to use it to get an emotional gratification for yourself? The second question or the second group of people I think about are all those people around Xerxes who are giving him glory, who are worshiping him as the king of kings over all of Persia. Who are the people? This isn't just following. Like leadership requires followers. If no one's, if you stop moving and look behind you, metaphorically or literally, and no one's with you, for example, if you take your family to the store and you look behind you, they're not following you anymore, right? I don't know if you can still do this, but back in the day, we used to be like, Jason, your mother's waiting at the, st- at the front of the store. Like, we'd, like hey, who got that done to them? Like, yeah, oh yeah, that's great. You know, you're doing that thing where you're, you're walking down every aisle going, you walk down the next one and you keep looking because you don't want your name said over the intercom, and it's, they say it anyways. But I'm not talking about leadership and following. There needs to be leaders and followers. That's how everything works. God made the world that way. Following a leader is not... Worship, the same thing as worshiping a leader, okay? Following a leader is not the same thing as um, being codependent upon another person, but codependency does exist, and glorifying our leaders does exist, okay? Who is your Xerxes? Is it a political figure? Is there someone in politics that they can never say anything wrong? Or if anyone critiques them, then what you have to do is defend them. If you're going to glorify your guy or gal, you have to demonize all the other guys or gals. And if you can't recognize that, just watch different news channels. You'll totally see that out there, like we wouldn't do it in here, right? We would never do that with politics. But out... Okay, like, man, that was like a little, that got a little too real there for a moment. I was like, remember the not taking ourselves too serious part at the beginning. But we've all done that. We've gone further than following a leader, and we've gone to glorifying a leader. This happens in politics. This happens with celebrities. Like, I just don't think we should know what's going on in Johnny Depp's life. I don't care, but it's all over my feet. I know stuff about that guy. I don't know about my own brothers now, you know? Why is that? Because someone is glorifying that guy or someone has to demonize that guy. Someone has to defend him to the teeth and they've never met him or someone has to rip him apart because he's a have and they're a have not. However that works, somebody's drinking Kool-Aid. That's the reason we know why Johnny Depp's marriage is on the news. Is there someone in your family? I always go back to this story and I think about the story of Jesus when this man approaches Jesus and says, what do I need to do to be your disciple? Uh, there's a couple of times he, get, he gets asked this question, and every time he answers it different and in a profound way. One guy, he told him to sell everything he had. A rich man came to Jesus, said, what do I need to do to get eternal life? Jesus tells the guy, you need to sell all your possessions, uh, give it all to the poor and the needy. And the guy walks away, and it says, yeah, he had a lot of possessions. Now, to follow Jesus doesn't mean you have to be poor. We've, we found out in, in the book of James, there's righteous rich and righteous poor, that being a Christian is not about being in a tax bracket. It's about your heart being made clean by Jesus and you worshiping God with how much or how little you have, right? So what we, what we see here is Jesus is getting in this guy's heart and he knows the thing he loves and where his identity comes from is in his money and in his stuff. Another guy asked Jesus, what do I need to do to be one of your disciples? And he says, you need to hate your father and mother, and you need to love me and be my disciple. Now, where I come from, that's 
I come from the South. I don't know where you're, or I guess it's the Midwest. I always said it was the South. I think Oklahoma's the Midwest or South. I don't know, but that's where I come from. That's why I talk funny, all right? But uh, we were, a buddy of mine was leading a Bible study one Sunday night, and they, kept, they covered those verses where Jesus says, you need to hate your mom and dad and follow me. And one of our ladies in the church spoke up and said, well, Jesus didn't say that. We're like, well, I'm pretty, it's red. The letters are red. It's right here. And so we read it again. And she said, well, my Jesus would never say that. And we were like, oh. (laughs) And we agreed with her because her Jesus was a figment of her imagination. And there's some things Jesus says that gets in our business. And the reason he said this to this guy is here's what I believe with all my heart. I don't think Jesus is saying, if you really love me, you'd slap your mama. He don't mean it that way because there's a whole bunch of Old Testament stuff about kids getting hung upside down by their toenails for doing stuff like that. Old Testament was crazy, y'all. It was crazy. Anyways, we live under grace now. God bless. I still have my toenails, and that's the only reason why. Okay. But here's the thing. Jesus was getting in that guy's business. Little kids are supposed to obey your parents. Adults, adult sons and daughters, there's no adult child, but adult sons and daughters are supposed to honor your parents. Not continue to obey, but to honor them. And here's what can happen. is Sometimes we will try to honor Jesus, but we obey our family. Sometimes we want to honor Jesus and recognize that he exists, but we really do worship our last name, or we worship our dad, or we worship our mom, or whatever legacy that has been made. I'm a Batman fan. I like DC Comics, and that's one thing that uh, Bruce Wayne's, uh, what's his name? The, the butler. I'm a big fan. Alfred, thank you. Yeah, it's like when you say, me and this guy are real good friends, and you can't remember his name, but you're real good friends. Alfred's always trying to protect the legacy of the Wayne family. Do you live like that? Like we have this legacy. What's this name? Or is it, uh, if, if, are you living so your dad would finally say he's proud of you and that'll even lead you to do things against your conscience or it'll cause you to disobey Jesus. I'm, I know for us, it was a big deal to move away from Oklahoma to plant a church. It was huge because in our culture back in Oklahoma, family stayed around each other. That was kind of a sign of saying, we don't love you if we leave. Now, that isn't how we meant it. That's the cultural narrative. And that's what Jesus was telling this guy. Listen, you find your identity, your worth, your value, and you worship your mom and your dad. And I'm going to tell you to do things that they will not approve of. And you're going to have to decide if you're going to love me, ultimately, or love them, ultimately. Or exchange the word worship. Are you going to worship me and honor your parents? Or are you going to dishonor me and worship your parents? Who's your Xerxes? Who's the one that when they pour the Kool-Aid out, you say, put a little more in my cup? These are called codependent type relationships. This is where we find our identity. We think these rulers or these leaders or these celebrities or substances are going to ultimately deal with our guilt and deal with our shame and deal with our fear. But the truth is, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. Let's follow our leaders. Enjoy politics if you can. Follow the leaders that God has given us. I get it. Don't find your identity there. Don't worship them. Your party will leave you behind eventually anyways. They do it every so many years. Worship Jesus. 
enjoy art, enjoy a film, enjoy music, but don't get your identity from a culture other than the kingdom of heaven. Honor your mama. Honor your dad. If if your kids, obey them, but worship Jesus because Jesus is the king who uses his throne and his glory for the good of his people. Jesus is the king who invites us to sit at his table and that supper will never, ever fade. Jesus is the king who uses gold as payment, pavement rather than decor because his glory is in his holiness and he has given that to all who believe in him. How do we become Christians? Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, If we would believe in our heart that Jesus raised from the dead and confess with our lips that he is Lord, we will be saved. Now, the power doesn't come from the mantra. It comes from the mission of Jesus. Jesus lived a life far different than Xerxes or Ahasuerus. That was like the mixtape, okay? Anyway. Jesus lived a life of righteousness for us. He didn't take from us. He lived for us. He died the death in our place that we should have died because of our sin. And he raised from the dead on the third day to give us hope, not in a re-election, but in eternal life. Death will die. Sin will fade. His glory will remain. Our relationships will remain. And peace will last longer than six months. It'll last forever. Let's pray.